So, Mac, tell me, who did you romance in the Mass Effect game? <laughs> uh, this is a, a sort of an easy and a hard question because um, ultimately in all of my many, many playthroughs, the answer is everyone. <laughs> everyone at some point and every permutation at some point, um, partly out of interest, but also out of duty, right? Uh, it was my job. I had to make sure that all the romances worked as, as expected. So it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it, right? Um, but, you know, when you talk about relationships and who I really loved uh, spending time with, I mean, I, I always look towards Garrus. I mean, he was sort of my first love in a couple of different ways. Obviously, the character that I got to sink my teeth into on the original Mass Effect um, and uh, then sort of evolve that character so much with Archangel plot and two and yeah okay so he was one of yours was he you dreamt him up as it were that's right yes on Mass Effect 1 that's correct wow as, yeah. and so where did he come from what what was the idea for him did you did you pull on inspirations from from somewhere else where did he kind of appear from in your head that's a great question these are the these are the kind of questions I'm talking about where it's hard to dredge up all the all the <laughs> All the reasons, and and I think it, one thing that's important to state is that while I ultimately wrote Garrus, it it was even at an early stage very collaborative, right? Yeah. It was something where, as a group of writers, and I can't remember there were you know certainly Drew was on the project, myself, I don't remember who was there early, but you know these would be things where we'd be bouncing ideas back and forth around everything from, you know, the different histories and different backgrounds of the various uh, species that we wanted to have uh, introduced in the game. And a lot of times it would evolve from something like that, where we, you know, I remember, you know, one of the things we had talked about with, you know, um, um, a lot of the different races was what kind of would make them special. And then we'd try to find something, like for me, what I would try to do is actually find someone who would kind of work against you know, for example, what the Turians are about. So the Turians are very militaristic. They've got this sort of culture that's almost Roman, right? Um, about 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 the way they're, um, you know, everyone's got to participate in the in the army or you know their version of the army. And so for me, let's find a character who is kind of almost rebelling against that to sort of be a foil for that. Um, so it's not just they're they're just another military person, then that's how we're going to explain uh, what the Turians are and what, what Garrus is. And that was a lot of the development for that story was we want, I wanted someone who really was sort of struggling with that and their place in, in the world. And then that gave Shepard the in to sort of, you know, provide insight, to provide guidance, right? Yeah, come join my team. Um, yeah. I love that Archangel um, bit at the beginning or, or part of way into the beginning of Mass Effect 2 as well, because it's that great, you know the yeah. characters already. You come back to it, and there's this whole special setup, and he's totally yeah. badass sniping people, and and then you get to meet him. <laughs> Welcome to One to One, an interview series where Megan Bertie, a journalist at Eurogamer, talk to brilliant people from around the world of games about the work they do. So today, for everyone listening, we have. Mr. Mass Effect, so I've decided to uh, coin him, um, the senior writer and then the lead writer of the original Mass Effect trilogy, um, then eventually the creative director of Mass Effect Andromeda, uh, and then the project director of the remastered Mass Effect trilogy, which came up relatively recently. 
And in between all that, the writer of some Mass Effect graphic novels and novels um, and some stretches of time with Jade Empire and Anthem and even Dragon Age 4 uh, Dreadwolf uh, in between. Blimey. It's the 19-year <laughs> veteran writer of Bioware, Mac Waters. Mac, welcome yeah. to the show. Thank you. And thank you for getting that all right. That was fantastic. Uh, and then and Jade Empire before all of that. Fantastic. So yep. I was going to ask, I normally ask a window into people's lives by asking where they are and to see if they have any memorabilia from you know the work they've done around them. But I understand you're just in a rented place at the moment and you're moving houses soon. You're off to Vancouver. Yep. That's true. So, so what have I interrupted you doing today? So I'll preface this by saying, you announced at the beginning of the year that you had um, uh, left Bioware, and, and we'll come on to that in just a second. Um, but what have I interrupted you doing today? Are you a man of leisure at the moment? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a, a man of leisure, but also, you know, um, looking f at new opportunities all the time. Um, I'm one of those people who, you know, how do I describe it? I have, since I was a little, little boy you know been imagining worlds uh in my head right and uh certainly when i found games oh i guess before that maybe before that it was um you know choose your own adventures and various other fictions and things like that but once i found games i felt like this is a place where i can really you know live in the worlds that uh, i imagine and then eventually got to turn that into i get to make some of those worlds which is even more incredible and so that doesn't stop. I can't turn that off. It doesn't matter where I work or where I am. I guess the you know the 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 longer answer is that you know I'm still as much as it's leisure. I'm also thinking up new worlds and new things that I would love to explore, new places and and new opportunities, and then trying to marry that with my current passions, which is of course creating amazing interactive narratives. Do you have a, a notebook or something where you store these ideas? Are you a kind of wake up in the middle of the night, kind of write the ideas down person? How do you store these ideas that come up? Yeah, yeah. I, I I am, but I'm just horribly um, kind of just whatever's available to me. So I find <laughs> notes on everything. Sometimes it's in like my Google tasks. You know, I put something in there on my phone or I actually have notebooks that I'll have. Or sometimes I'm on a computer when it happens, and so it's in some random drive somewhere. And trying to find all of these things is always a pain. Um, once once I have something to focus on, that'll come the real time to sort of you know, you know, collate everything and, and get it all in one spot again. But for now, yeah, it's scattered. Plus, so much of it just resides in my in my head day to day as well, babbling around. Um, so I mentioned that. Um... You'd left Bioware, and I think you left towards uh, the tail end of, of last year, I think you said. Yeah. So can you talk, tell us a bit about your decision to leave Bioware? Because it must have been tempting to get to a nice round 20 years, a nice yeah. round number. Uh, but but why have you gone? Because, you know, I've seen a few kind of veterans leaving in recent years. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of you know, as you do soul searching at various points and usually when a, a game ships is a, is a time to do that. And first thing was when I shipped Mass Effect Legendary Edition and, you know, it was a success, but it was also an internal success in that the team that we got to put together for that, you know, were really well bonded. We still hang out and, and talk regularly. It was just a, just a phenomenal experience despite having to, you know, go to work from home because the pandemic hit, dur you know, during production in that. 
although maybe because of that, maybe helped us bond even more in a way. Um, it just, I knew at the end of that, that I was done at least for the short term of doing anything Mass Effect. I'd done a lot of Mass Effect, right? And I love the series. Um, but I also wanted to do something new. You know, um, I also realized how extremely fortunate I've been, you know, in my time at Bioware to be at the start of three IPs. Like people don't always get an opportunity to be at, at, at the start of one. You know, I was there for Jade, I was there for Mass and there for Anthem. And so I've kind of got that in my blood. And as I mentioned, I'm a person who's always dreaming up new worlds. So I was like, I think it's time to start really considering you know, what is out there beyond Mass Effect and, and just adding to the Mass Effect. And and here's the thing too is, I found this actually working on Andromeda, which is great with the team in Montreal. There are now people who come to Bioware who are fans of the franchise before, you know, uh, um, they started as working on the, as a, as a developer on the franchise, right? And so I think it's also, you know, I don't want to make it sound too alt, uh, um, altruistic, but you know, making way for the next generation to add their mark yeah. to the franchise, right? So there was that side of it. And then, you know, I think I just was starting to feel that itch that you feel. It's 19 years, 19 plus years at, at Bioware. I just, I, I, you know, I've talked to other people who've gone on and done some other things. And it was just that point where I was like, I think uh, if I'm going to really stay engaged in making games and really stay fulfilled day to day, I need a bit more of a seismic shift and not just moving to another project internally. And I looked at lots of options. Are there things that, that electronic arts in general I could do? Is there something new I could do at Bioware? But ultimately, I think the decision was, you know, I think I just I need to make a clean break. And part of that too was I needed the space that a nine to five job doesn't afford you to sort of, you know, rethink a lot of things and spend some time. And that, as we discussed, you know, I was taking some time for myself before this and just, you know, that was advice, like really good advice I got from a lot of people, which was take some time, you know, to really think about it. And um, I did. Yeah, because it's funny what comes up with perspective sometimes. I get it sometimes when, yep. if you go, go away on holiday or something, if you kind of, you know, step away from your computer for a week or two weeks, this distance starts to come in. You can see things differently. Has anything kind of bubbled up in that period of reflection or any revelations has anything been bubbling up that surprised you or made a mark yeah i think you know um my passion you know it was interesting I'm, I'm one of those people who likes to do a little bit of everything and when i do the same thing day in day out um no matter how interesting or exciting that is it, it wears on me so i i know even um on the mass Effect franchise as a writer each project I was getting to do new things and, and deepen my craft, but I was always trying to like pull in other elements of, of, you know, development into my day to day, because just focusing on writing is kind of, was one of those things where it's like, ah, it's too singular sort of thing. And so when I moved to, you know, more leadership roles at the studio, it was great because I got to expand and do that. So I think one of the things I've sort of been rekindled in this period is that sort of passion for maybe not pure writing, like I, I haven't sat down and said, oh, I want to write a novel, but I definitely, you know, some of the early work we do in world building and, um, you know, you know, doing sort of larger arcs and narrative arcs and things like that, like I'm really enjoying just sort of playing around with those ideas in my head again and exploring, especially, I still feel like there's so much 
untapped in, you know, I said it at the start is interactive storytelling, finding ways to really leverage, um, you know, the tools we have in games to tell stories in a way that haven't been told before. And so I think that's where a lot of my thinking has been going. So the ideas that you're having at the moment, are they anchored by a particular game or a particular world or are they just, they could be applied anywhere kind of ideas? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I was trying to be very open and free with any ideas that I was having and not, not, you know, obviously we all have our, our preferences. You know, I do tend to lean towards things that are more futuristic and there's certain topics and things that are always of interest to me. I'm, I often tell people I'm very inspired less so by other fiction, but by nonfiction, right? So whenever, you know, like you look at this current explosion of, of AI machine learning that's happening in the world right now, we're all sort of seeing it, uh, come to life and it's been going on for a while, but it's, it's just become so present recently and another topic. And that's one of these things that I've always loved both the nonfiction side of it. And of course the fiction side of, of where's AI going to go and what can we talk about it? So to me, this is one of those topics where again, it's fresh and it's like, okay, let's, let's do the dotted line of, okay, we're here now. Where's it in five years? Where's it in 20 years? Where's it in 50 years? And what are the possibilities both again in the real world, but in fictional storytelling, right? And so that's consumed a lot of my, my time as I've been experimenting with some of these, you know, tools, but also just imagining what the future could look like. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, and just, I suppose to clarify, it doesn't sound like it, but we're not losing you from games, are we? You're still very much in the game sphere and you want to kind of come back and stay in that area. I, yeah, I definitely think so. Like, I, you know, I've considered looking at there's, there's, you know, if you look at some of the streaming services and what they're doing there, they're sort of dipping the toe into interactive, um, narrative. But every time I see that, I'm like, you know, it works, but it, it doesn't work for the medium yet. And I don't know when it will. And so I do think for me, the, the sort of, um, the optimal, you know, medium to be in is, is in games. Right. Um, and maybe, you know, I, I really loved how innovative we were, you know, in the early days of Bioware, how we were really pushing narrative and, um, trying to do new things in that. And I'd like to get back to that you know, and, yeah. and really re-envision the future of, of interactive narrative. See, I think this is a, a common thread with Bioware that I don't think people sometimes give Bioware enough credit for. And I think that's um, pushing at the boundaries, you know, when, when Mass Effect mm -hmm. was um, originated. And even now, I think with the with the leak we've seen from uh, the new Dragon Age game, Dreadwolf, and how people are saying, oh, it's quite like God of War. I mean, we ha you know, we haven't actually officially seen it in the flesh yet. But even there, I'm like a long-term Bioware fan and Dragon Age fan, and I know people are apprehensive, but I'm like, this is kind of what Bioware does. You know, they they push things forward. Anyway, that's a tangent. Um, let's go back in time um, a little bit. Let's, um, let, in fact, let's go back in time uh, quite a lot. And, and you touched on this a little bit, but I want to kind of plot to how you ended up um, where you did. And you, you mentioned as a kid, you were always kind of dreaming up um, worlds was the idea always to kind of work in games because I think for a, I've been reading this Bioware 25 book um, and I think for a lot of people that joined the studio like game development just didn't exist really as a big obvious thing that you could get into so what was the original plan as a kid yeah 
So uh, I like I like this quote. You've teed up one of my favorite stories that I often tell people. So perfect, good, good for you. <laughs> um, you know, I can remember. Uh, I still remember the game uh, Bard's Tale, the original Bard's Tale, okay. and uh, back when the, you know, it was uh, five and quarter inch, and it, and the sleeves looked more like album covers. You know, like the game sleeves looked more like album covers, and you could open it up. And loved the game. And I remember uh, I don't know how young I was, but I was young, and and uh, I'm pretty sure um, you know the head developer was their picture was inside, uh, if not on the actual sort of cover, but then maybe in the, you know, the materials that you pulled out. I was like, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. It was an electronic arts game too, which was kind of interesting. <laughs> but that said, every time there wasn't, to your point, there wasn't like a path for that. There wasn't an obvious path. You couldn't go to school for it. I didn't know anybody in the industry. Um, and so it was just more of like a dream of like, how do you do that? I'm not sure. And um, you know, in talking to people who you often do as you're going to, you know, plan to go to university, the response you'd get from most of the people who would give me feedback were, don't worry about that. It's not a real job, <laughs> you know, go get a real job. And, you know, so, you know, I meandered for a while and I was very much an entrepreneur from day one. And, you know, I've had a, you know, I had businesses we were running, you know, when I was in university, it was kind of the, the, that early age of the PC. And, you know, I was already building PCs, so it was easy for me to just go to people's homes and help them set up their PCs and help them set up windows and all that kind of stuff. I then parlayed that into more of um, IT consulting, that type of thing um, on my own. Anyway, long story short, after trying a couple of different, you know, um, gigs at different places, also, you know, I, I went to my master's in, in psychology in um, uh, human color vision thinking, oh, maybe I'll go into... Um, academia. No, I'm not, you know, talking about a person who doesn't like things getting narrower and narrower, you know, and likes to do things broader and broader. It's like, nope, this isn't, this isn't for me. Um, but I was once again running my own sort of business and Ray Muzika, who's one of the co-founders of, of Bioware was doing an entrepreneurial talk. Um, and so I met him and the thing that struck me was he was talking about him and Greg, they both have their MBAs. They were talking about Bioware as a business, right? I was like, hold up. Everyone said, this isn't a real job. Everyone said that you can't get a job doing this. Someone's lied to me. And so because I, you know, had the flexibility running my own business at the time to take some time, I took, you know, a good chunk of every day for about, I'm going to say at least a month, maybe longer, just diving into the Neverwinter Nights tool set. Again, we want to talk about innovation that people have forgot about, like what an incredible tool that thing was. Um, and then I basically just created a submission and said, I'm going to do this. And here we are. That's, that's, that's how everything, that's how everything, um, sort of got me into games. It was a long, long journey and, a, a, you know, not a straight path, but. Sorry, I'm, I'm muting and I'm muting the mic. There. So, um, so you joined, um, in 2003, I think, yep. uh, Bioware and you were put to work on Jade Empire. I loved that game. I was, I'm still secretly a bit sore that it never got a sequel. Um, I was always yeah. kind of hoping for one. Um, but what was your first experience? Because it, I guess it was your first job in the industry as well. So what was yeah. your first experience of, of writing at Bioware like? Um, yeah, the first experience. So um, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what really hooked me um, into the industry probably forever, which was you know, I've talked about how I kind of imagine these things. I have a very vivid imagination. I, and I think it also is why it translates well when I'm, I'm doing 
uh, graphic novels is because I can picture each pain in my head very clearly and I can you know provide that sort of direction and and guidance and then map it all out into a story right and I remember um we were working on I think it was the dirge level it's called um the spirit world level in in um Jade Empire and I wrote a cutscene out and I'm 99% sure it was Tony DeWall who I was working with at the time who was a cinematic uh, animator and we talked about it back and forth back and forth and then you know um, he went away and then you know one day he said hey do you want to see it and I'm like oh yeah I want to see it and it just utterly blew me away that something that I had pictured in my head right was suddenly now like real there's something different than just writing my words and seeing them in the you know like this was incredible and I would say I think the other thing that hooked me into the industry was that it wasn't just my pure vision Tony obviously brought all of his own vision to it and so the ultimate end product was this thing that was even better than what I had imagined right and from that moment on I was like oh this is incredible like this is what I get to do I get to imagine these things work with amazing people and then they become real right you know uh, I, I it was just to me that was incredible a lot of the actual day-to-day -day on the writing, again, um, you know, Jade Empire was actually kind of a sweet spot for me because when I when I joined, it's funny, I I had this submission and it had I had done my own scripting, I had done my own writing, you know, I brought in music and edited all of that, and even created a map. And I remember after the interview, they're like, "You've done all this stuff. What do you want to do here?" And I chose writing because um, I had also always enjoyed writing, and it seemed like at Bioware that was you know going to be a key thing but in jade i often loved it because there was a lot of in the engine we were using there's still a lot of things i could do just to set up the world myself typical like level design work um things like that or, or basic scripting so i was in the sweet spot of i got to write but i also got to do all these other things i actually worked very heavily with the audio team on jade empire to help them uh flesh out the the um audio the music system that we had and then i would do a lot of the actual conversation scripting to make sure that the music actually played um and you know i don't know if anyone noticed but we actually ran out of time i think about three quarters of the way through the game and <laughs> the music scripting actually gets much less precise <laughs> in the last the last quarter of the game so we literally just ran out of time on it um but yeah it was a fantastic just wonderful experience i honestly was just I, there's so much i didn't know that i didn't know at the time you know it was just everyday learning everyday growing and uh yeah, and I think the biggest uh, sort of challenge, which really I got to really hone my you know, skills at on Mass Effect One, was the the interactive nature of it. We had much more branching and and um, conditionals in Mass Effect One uh, than we did in Jade. But you know, I got to learn some of the branching stuff on on Jade Empire as well. Yeah, so I mean, I remember Mass Effect being in development really well because it felt like this kind of new age um of of bioware in a way you know I'd, I'd sort of followed them through neverwinter nights and things and 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 jade empire and then there was this big new sort of cinematic age going on and all of a sudden the characters were you know animated and doing all these yep. things and cutscenes, and it felt like you were um you were right in there um the studio star was kind of rising uh, at the time and there's kind of an excitement there um so when you were brought onto the project, how much of it was already down on paper? Were you involved in the kind of original concepting or was there already a plan kind of down? 
there was a there was a core plan. Uh, I remember Preston and Drew and Casey were working on things pretty early. But the thing was, I had been working with um, Drew. Drew had come over to do some Jade Empire stuff, so they kept pulling me into some of the early meetings. So that was nice from that perspective. That you know, I would often sit in their office and we would just talk about the very like, what is the game going to be? But I think from the level of you know, it was Jack Bauer in space. I think that was an early thing that we we talked about. And, you know, the idea of it, you know, being uh, a trilogy of games, that was something that Casey had, had you know, put a stamp on very early. Um, right, okay. Like, so I wanna... even, even before, like, when I was still finishing off Jade Empire. Okay, because I want to pounce on this bit, because uh, for the people listening um, or watching, uh, one of the reasons I contacted Mac in the first place was to talk about Mass Effect um, being a trilogy. Right. Because I, it's something that I wanted to know more about because I think about this sometimes and I think about it because, frankly, it's kind of outrageous. I can't imagine another studio ever doing what Bioware did with the Mass Effect trilogy. I can't imagine Bioware would have done it had it known um, how it would kind of be. Uh, and this is for, for all kinds of reasons. And I think this is why the trilogy will always be extraordinary um, beyond simply being a collection of of great games so you mentioned there that the trilogy was that was one of the original things it was originally in the, in that document do you know where the idea came from whose idea was it it was it was definitely casey's idea he he wanted there were some things that he really wanted mass effect to lead into and one of them was the cinematic nature of it in general so the conversation system that we developed came out of that but also that sort of um three arc you know much like the original star wars that that inspired him and i think that was a lot of what he wanted to see us do we often talked about mass effect 2 being the darker middle act much like empire right like the, there was a lot of influence coming from that from day one and the other sort of um hallmark of Bioware, which was, you know, sort of the RPG side of it, which was really wanting to have consequences that would then also, of course, have an impact game to game to game as you went through that trilogy. And we knew that that was really going to be the thing, like saying we're going to do three games in a franchise. Okay, that that's challenging, but we're actually going to do three games where the, the choice and consequence actually carry over for you. That was the big, bold innovation, I think, that we we tackled. Um, and yeah, that was that was really Casey driving all of that. It was uh, yeah, brilliant. And it's a great way to get excitement around a new IP as well, because this is yes, um, yeah, uh, one of the studio's big new things. So, what was the idea around the trilogy when it was first down on paper? How much of it was kind of written out, or was it just at the top of the page, like this will be a trilogy and that's it, or was it was it actually thought further than that? Yeah. Um, so the way I often describe it was we would have, you know, by the time I was in there regularly, we were working on sort of, you know, the one to five page, this is what Mass Effect 1 will be. And at that time, I would say we had, you know, maybe, maybe a generous paragraph of what we thought Mass Effect 2 might be, and literally a line on what Mass Effect 3 would be. And it would be what? very aspirational, like, let's wrap this whole thing up in Mass Effect 3, right? <laughs> like it was, you know, um, I think, you know, things like the concept of uh, once we dug into it and once we had the idea of the Reapers, the idea that obviously that would all resolve itself in the third 
third and final act was important. Um, but we intentionally left a lot of that open because we weren't sure where we wanted to take everything. There's so much of the way that we handle story and world building in in these IPs is it's very organic. Like there's obviously things that you hash out day, you know, before anyone starts really doing work to build the game. But then the actual building of the game is where I would say majority of that world building happens, right? We'll say, okay, we want to do a plot and we want to center it around one of the alien species. And we realize, okay, we don't really know much about them yet. <laughs> Let's use this plot to do that. And that's where all of that gets fleshed out, right? Um, and then on top of that, you know, you don't know how the fans are going to respond. You don't know what, what people are going to be attracted to. And I think in order even just to say culturally re relevant, I think it's important that you're really considering where are you when you go to do the next game? Where are you when you go to do the third game sort of thing? So really allowing us to let each story of each game stand on its own within the context of a, of a trilogy by not tying ourselves, you know, down too soon. Yeah. And I guess it's just a an amount of work thing as well. It's hard to um, think out three games uh, yeah. while you're still trying to get to grips uh, oh, yeah. with one. So as Mass Effect 1 development stretches on, I'm presuming the trilogy aspect of the game is kind of pushed to the back of your mind because you're like, let's just get uh, yep. this first game made. Um, so are you thinking about it being a trilogy at all? Are you writing any arcs that you think, ah, oh, this is cool, this will go like all the way through? Is anything like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's actually one of the key things that probably sets, um, again, that franchise apart is that we intentionally seeded a lot of mystery where we were like, we're not going to answer this now. Um, and we don't know how or where or when we'll answer it, but we want to put the mystery in there and then pay it off someday going forward. Um, the romance arcs was something that um, I know we discussed a lot. We really, you know, for... Ash and Caden, the idea was that that could be a romance arc that you could carry throughout the trilogy. Obviously, we added so many more characters and other other options as you went through, but that one was already planned to be an arc right through the series. Um, I remember even talking early days that, you know, having Ash and Caden, or whoever survives, of course, um, kind of fall away from you in the second game, only to return in the third game. And this idea that if you stayed true to them, there might be something different than if you didn't um you know those are things that we discussed very early on as far as wanting to have that sort of uh arc going through but when you look at the plot of each game and where we were going we wanted each of those to again really stand alone as much as possible yeah okay so you kind of finish up on on mass effect one um and then move on to mass effect two yeah and at this point you're like okay now we have to kind of you know let the pull on the consequences here of the thing you know the things we put there is is this a point where some realization sinks in and you're like this is quite complicated uh actually or is it still quite exciting because i suppose you're not at the finishing part yet you're in the middle you can still i suppose do what you like yep well i'll give you the clue here the fact that we um created a suicide mission in that mass effect 2 <laughs> where any or or all or like all or none of the characters could survive tells you that we weren't we weren't we weren't too daunted after one on complexity <laughs> because there couldn't be anything you could do that's more complex um than that and then have to follow it up right so um by the time we kind of landed on that concept for you know the suicide squad 
uh, you know, we often joked in the early days, it was like, well, I guess, you know, our future selves won't be too happy with this, but it's a great idea. So let's go ahead with it. Um, so yeah, there was always complexities though. Like even just the actual task, the actual process of bringing all the conditionals forward. Cause at, at one point I remember us talking about, well, we'll just bring forward the most critical, um, you know, conditionals, um, and states from the first game into the second one. And then we realized, oh, well, like it depends on who you ask. Like it's so varied depending on who you ask, which, what's important, right? Like some players really love certain things. And then we realized in the end, it's like, nope, we're going to just have to carry every choice that you possibly made and every little state check that we have. We have this, this tool called the plot manager and it tracks so many different things, like thousands and thousands of things. We just had to bring it wholesale forward into, into two. And then what happens is, of course, you have all the, the plot manager for Mass, of Mass Effect 2 with all of its states and changes and layered in there all the things from one. And that's where you start to go, well, there's a, there's a lot here. <laughs> and then just wait until the next game where we've got all three of these plot managers' states persistent and that you can pull from them. Like, yeah. Um, I, I honestly say, I think that, you know, for folks who probably came in just on the third game, it, I don't know how they, it didn't just blow their mind. Like I had the benefit of being able to sort of just know what certain things were and what was going to be important or just, you know, even intuitively understand some of these things um, and keep track of them in my head. But yeah, like so much, so much data, quite frankly, like that we're carrying from game to game, just incredible. Um, a brief aside. Um, yes. Before we get into the third game, I read in the Bioware 25 book, which is great, by the way, uh, if, if anyone's listening to this. Um, Drew Carpishan obviously left Mass Effect 2 midway through, after which you stepped up um, to become the lead writer. Um, but you literally missed your step one day, I read, and fell down a flight of stairs um, and hurt your back. Is that right? No, uh, that was actually on Mass 1. Uh... And uh, I don't. It was actually, I, I just have genetically horrible um, discs, unfortunately. And uh, I had actually been struggling with some back issues for a few years. And I actually was just, I, I don't think there was an inciting incident. I didn't fall downstairs. There was, there was a, sadly, someone else at Byra who did fall downstairs. Weeks who fell down the stairs. No, it wasn't Patrick. It was someone else. And it was, it was a bit more of a dire circumstance. But they, um, I think those two stories got conflated. But I was just, you know, it was just a series of events, and eventually my my <laughs> my uh, disc between L four and L five actually ruptured, and I it like to the degree where I was like sciatic pain. I tried working from home for a while. I remember writing Garrus stuff for Mass Effect one at home, and I finally just had to tell Drew, it's like I I can't I can't even concentrate on work right now, and so then uh, I actually had to get a microdiscectomy, and he went in and cleaned it up and did, it. and then afterwards I was right as rain. It was great. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, my yeah. partner has um, some disc issues, so I. Uh, oh yeah, it's it's no fun. Yeah. Um, okay. That brief aside, out of the yeah. way. Um, so, was there an inkling while you're making Mass Effect Two that trouble is a cloud is brewing, that trouble is on the horizon here, that you're going to have to sort of tie, you know, sort this bowl of spaghetti out eventually. Uh, yeah, like I said, we we would often joke that, you know, our future selves are going to have to pay for this, but we didn't, the thing I have to say that I really loved about that team is we didn't let it hold us back. Like every once in a while we'd be like, okay, this is going to be challenging, but we had that sort of, we'll figure it out mentality uh, when the time is right. And so, and, and I'm so thankful for that because if you think of all the things that people tend to, um, you know, 
talk about when they're referring to Mass Effect 2. They don't necessarily know all the technical things that are happening in the background and the complexity there, but it, it without that, those things wouldn't exist. Like the, the Suicide Squad, the conflicts that you can have with your characters, um, all of that is just this, like you said, it's a spaghetti of conditionals and things like that in the background that if we had sort of, you know, taken too much time and said, oh, this is going to be hard, let's not do it. Well, Mass Effect 2 wouldn't have been what Mass Effect 2 was, right? Um, so I'm so glad that we... About that kind yeah. of naivety in a way, yes. which, which leads yeah. to some great things. So yep. we're, we're in Mass Effect 3 land and you sat down and, and now we're your future selves um, and they're sitting there going, ah, oh, yep. what have we done? So... When you sit down, is it apparent as soon as you're sitting down and concepting the game that this is going to be tricky? Yeah, I think I think it, we also realized that it was going to be uh, not just tricky, but also probably more expensive. I, I, a lot of folks don't realize how much content is actually in Mass Effect 3 uh, as opposed to the other games simply because of all of those conditions, right? Because uh, there's so, like on a single playthrough, you're only going to see a fraction of what we actually created from Aspect 3 because all these other conditions can come into play, right? Different people could be dead, different people could be alive, different people could like you, they might not like you. Um, the actual, like if you look at the, trying to think of some of the, um, and we just went through all this, we were looking at all the assets again for um, the Legendary Edition, but I think 3 is like on par with being bigger than 2 and 1 combined. Like wow. when you just look at assets and things that are in there. Certainly when you look at line counts, it's much bigger. There's just so much going on in there. And that was with us getting better at a lot of things too. Keep in mind, we were much more efficient. There was so much, like in Mass Effect 1, we shipped so much content that you probably didn't see, but because it was just not, it was meant to come out of the game, but it was actually still left in, hooked up, just so we were still figuring out Unreal, we were figuring out the tools, we were figuring out all that stuff. So if you actually cleaned it up and got more efficient with it, you know, that's where we were at with three, and yet it was still so huge, like just massive amount of work. And uh, but it was great too because we had such a you know the team really understood what we were making better, obviously, than the other two projects. Simply from a perspective of we'd been there, we'd done it before, um, we knew you know kind of with a level of certainty like what something would cost or the effort it would take, and so we were able to like if you took Mass Effect three. Um, content-wise, and said, now build that, but back when you're figuring everything out, Mass Effect 1, like it would have taken us 10 years probably <laughs> to do that, <laughs> to figure it all out. So was there ever, a, was there anything that was a particular challenge that you remember, and, and along the lines of a trilogy-related kind of particular challenge when you were making uh, the third game? Yeah, you know, I think... Um, so you just mean throughout the trilogy in general, not not on any one specific game? Oh, uh, yeah, I think... Or in making it a trilogy, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think the the biggest thing is that it's, you know, as a writer, what I would say is, you know, going from linear narrative to a branching, you know, um, interactive fiction where the player has autonomy, that's a challenge. Like it's always a challenge to do that, but then taking it that next step where, yeah, it goes from game to game to game, right? So it, th those threads are just branching out and branching out and branching out to you know almost infinity. Then add the other complexity that you know the same writer might not be picking up the same thread game to game, mm -hmm. right? 
That doesn't always happen. Good example is Mass Effect Three. I wanted to write um, uh, Garrus, but I just I just didn't have the bandwidth. I did you know as a lead writer, I was managing all these threads, right? So I was like, I had to give up Garrus, right? Um, so someone else had to come in. John picked him up and, and took over. So that's now something that now John not only has to worry about the voice of Garrus and making sure he's got that right. But what are all the threads, right? What, what are all the things, all the permutations in there? Um, and a lot of times it was great because we did we did work in a writer's pit um, for, for Mass Effect 3. And we were all together in a room. So there was a lot of like, hey, on 2, what happened? What 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 did you do with that? And, and then you know, have to remember. And yeah, it's a lot of spelunking too, like going back into these tools and kind of trying to determine it's like, okay, where was the thread? Oh, this happened, right? And then you've you think you've done it right and you still haven't done it right. So, I mean, it is a feat that I think because we were in it, we didn't realize, um, I think, how special it was. But if you just look at a work of interactive fiction across those three titles, um, and the fact that it just holds up as a story, right? just that that in and of itself is actually incredible, right? Um, but the amount of work that we've done in there to really let the player feel like they have autonomy like the player, like it's my shepherd and it's my story. And there are so many of those versions of, of that story out there. I, I don't think even I don't have a full sort of understanding of how crazy and complex and ultimately, I think, impressive it was that we were able to pull that off, you know, over the course of three games. Did you ever feel at any point like it, you'd bitten off more than you could chew and you were like, why did we do this? This is too much. Um, maybe it's because I'm a glutton for, um, puzzles. I was going to say, I was going uh, to say something else, but it's actually, pu I love puzzles. Like I love the logic puzzles. I never really felt that. I don't think, um, certainly while we were in it, uh, I mean, there were always, you know, small challenges that came up in game development that you always have, but nothing in the sense of we had, we've bitten off more than we can chew and, um, ultimately, like if I'm being honest, we often, you know, wanted to do more in each game than we actually were able to accomplish sort of thing. So we all often had to pare back because uh, we were always trying to do so much. Um, and then, you know, moving things to DLC or doing things in DLC instead of the, the main title. So uh, the trilogy brings with it some um, opportunities and obviously... Um, Maybe some drawbacks as well. I guess the building, the sense of a building crescendo yep. sets up this kind of um, ending backlash maybe that comes because people have these um, sky high expectations of, you know, they want an ending that, I don't know, is, is perhaps impossible, uh, that, that, that yep. doesn't exist somehow, that, you know, they want some spectacular payoff that is unachievable maybe. But then again, if you didn't do a trilogy, you couldn't have an Empire Strikes Back Yep. kind of moment in the middle maybe so after uh the third game comes out and bioware is kind of taking stock and and, and thinking about uh, what's going on i think at this point you go you go on to work on answer is that right yep that's right um so does bioware has bioware ever talked about doing a trilogy again in the time that you were there have you, have you ever heard anyone talk about doing a trilogy again i don't think so no i don't think we've ever talked about that again even, um, you know, with the talk of, you know, the next, when we were talking about Andromeda, it wasn't really about, uh, we knew that, I should say, we knew that we wanted it to be a series. Okay. Um, for sure. 
but not a trilogy per se. Because that's right? interesting, right? Because it's Mass Effect again, and you're talking yep. about a series. So instinctively, people will think, oh, great, I'll be able to carry my yep. save on again. But Bioware is thinking the opposite of that. Like, no, there'll be a series, but... Yep. And is this because you think it was too complex before? Um, no, I think it was... Um, we were looking again because we were innovating. We were like, well, we've done that. What else can we do, right? So uh, the early days of Andromeda, I should say, like, I think the idea of carrying um, plots and story and characters through the series was, and choice and consequence was actually part of it, you know, on Andromeda. But early days Andromeda, and I wasn't on the project then, but it was very much, you know, um, some of the concepting had been, uh, I think, inspired by, you know, um, No Man's Sky things like that, where it's like, hey, you know, we're a space game. What if we went bigger? Like really something more procedurally based, something where you could really feel like you're actually exploring a universe and tapping into the exploration side of things. Ultimately, I think that was too much at odds with a lot of the way that we tell stories and the way that we create our content, which tends to be very bespoke, right? Mm. A lot of big set pieces and things like that. It's hard to translate that into a perception, into a procedural world. But I think that was uh, that was at the start, at the very least, sort of that innovation that we were looking at, or what the teams were looking at. Why isn't it um, you? Uh, why weren't you part of the the kind of concepting of Andromeda, or were you part of the concept? Yeah, I, most of the core Mass Effect team was still, I guess you would call them. I'll call us consultants. Like we were, okay. we were definitely consulted on a lot of things. Um, but because we were also building out uh, Anthem, which is codenamed Dylan at the time. This was our first new IP in how many years? Um, you can imagine that my day-to-day -day was not only taken up with that, but that was what my interest was. Like, okay, great. I've just spent, you know, you know whatever, whatever it was, 2006 to 2012 or 14 now, I guess, 13 um, on this one series. Now I get to start again, right? And also, you know, ground floor. Now I'm the narrative director. I can do this. Um, so that was all-consuming. And, and as much as I wanted to, help the team as they were consulting. I was like, ah, I think they got it. They're good. And, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. But you would get, um, ultimately, about a year and a half later, you'd get, or maybe it was longer, but I think it was about a year and a half later, you got pulled back onto the Andromeda team because yep. I think, think things were kind of in disarray a little bit. Is that fair? Um, yeah, certainly from a leadership perspective, because Casey had just left, um, and he was obviously providing, um, you know, as the executive producer, he was still overseeing uh, Andromeda. So without him there, we were lacking sort of that sort of continuity from, you know, the core leadership team. And um, they also, um, I think, had just departed with their game director or I can't remember, creative director or something like that. So it was just that sort of void that they had there in leadership and, and on, on the sort of continuity side, I think. And so when I came in there, and I, and I would say that the, it wasn't so much that it was... Um, you know, in disarray or anything like that, but it was in that pivot point, in that sort of inflection of, oh, we can't do both procedural, you know, all of this stuff and fulfill all the wishes and hopes of our fan base who really want to see a lot of this bespoke narrative yeah. uh, written in a certain way. And so that was probably my first challenge, which was how do we marry these two things or can we marry these two things, right? And... um and uh, I'd say that was probably the, the main challenge throughout that whole process. It wasn't just, you know, making another 
Mass Effect game, which, you know, I think the team was well on their way to doing. It was how do we do it and also innovate in more of an open world space. Yeah. Okay. I see. So, you know, Mass Effect Andromeda comes out, you, you, you get a game out. Um, in a sense, I don't want to say it doesn't live up to expectations because, you know, there are plenty of people on our team um, here who, who really like it um, still. Um, but I think the high standard, I guess, that the, the trilogy set, for, you know, for better or worse, for a lot of people, it doesn't, it doesn't get there. Yep. Um, how do you feel about Andromeda now? Because now we're away from kind of all the hype and expectation and things like that. What do you feel about how it went down? Were people too harsh? What's your kind of take on that? Um, I don't know if people were too harsh. I mean, we had set a very high bar with Mass Effect 3 and on, on certainly some key areas, we didn't live up to that. I think the problem was, you know, if you look at it just more internally and what we were looking at, it was it felt more like a Mass Effect 1 in the development, right? Okay. New engine, new cycle, brand new team, although a lot of, you know, veterans as well, but a new team in Montreal. So you go back to that sort of like what I was saying before when I said, you know, if you tried to put all the content of Mass Effect 3 on the Mass Effect 1 team, it would have taken us 10 years, right? Similarly, there were just a lot of things that we had to relearn, refigure out. And um, ultimately, when you do that, it's very, very challenging to come out and be as polished as, you know, your third iteration, right, yeah. was. And we didn't hit that. And, and we probably should have, you know, in, in hindsight, I think we should have just reduced scope more and executed on on what we could to quality. Um, but we were also at a, at a weird phase in the industry where the, a lot of people were saying, you know, quantity was quality, right? And so we were kind of, I think, you know, deluding ourselves internally a little bit that, you know, if it's maybe not as polished as three, it's fine, it's bigger, right? And there's more here and there's more to do. And we kind of hit a point where it's like, people were like, no, that isn't that isn't okay, or at least it's not okay with for your franchise, and that's fine. That's a lesson learned. I think ultimately, though, when I look back on the game and what the team was able to do, it's a fun. It's again another phenomenal game. Like if you actually look at where we innovate and what what you can do in that space, it's there's a lot of incredible stuff. I only wish we had been able to, you know, then do a second one, you know, because yeah. then you would have really seen that polish, just like we did on from one to two, in the original. So. This is, what follows must have been kind of a tough period because you had, like I said, like the highs of the Mass Effect trilogy. Although I suppose at the very end of that, um, it was sort of smeared by that kind of backlash to the to the ending, which I quite liked the ending originally. I'll probably get in trouble for saying that, but um, but then you had Andromeda didn't quite hit the same highs, and then Anthem um, was a slightly strange thing that you know this big sort of exciting world but it didn't quite land in in the right way and those kind of games are infinitely tricky yep um and and i don't know bioware's it must have been tricky inside because all of a sudden like it felt like the tide had turned and and you know people were sort of kind of griping against bioware did did you feel that on the inside what was that like oh no yeah we we definitely felt it like you know i felt like um the, there's a couple of things like one, you know, on Andromeda, we're trying to innovate into sort of an open world space and on Anthem, we're trying to innovate into more of a free to play cooperative space. And in both cases, what we didn't do was marry that as well as we could to the expected Bioware experience, right? Yeah. 
Um, and an anthem, it was even more of a dichotomy, I think. Like they were just, it almost felt like two games in one and neither really fully fleshed out, um, unfortunately. Although still a, an interesting concept there. And I think even internally, we started to feel like there were people who were, this isn't a Bioware game, why are we doing this? Um, and then of course it's all confirmed when it comes out. But the thing I would often remind people of, especially people who hadn't been there as long as like, again, when I joined Bioware, we were innovative right? Like we were always trying to push and innovation sometimes means you don't get it right, unfortunately. Um, and what you really hope for is that opportunity to, uh, improve upon it. Like a mass effect, you know, there's, there's arguably lots of things that we didn't do right. Right. But then we got to hone it and improve it on two and then, you know, sort of perfect it on three. Um, I think, you know, again, with more time, Anthem was already trending to something that was actually pretty unique and interesting and, and had a, a really legitimate space, um, a legitimate, legitimate argument to be in the, the game space, but it just needed time to get there. And certainly had we shipped a mass, uh, an Andromeda two, I, I, I'm hundred percent certain it would have, it would have, we would have improved on all the things that people called out and then also been able to lean into the innovative, uh, things that we were trying to do as well. Yeah. Have you had but, anything to do with, um, the new vision for Mass Effect. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, early days, Casey and, and myself, and we, we again, it was more of a consulting thing um, where I was in. We were just talking about it as obviously, you know, like you said, that Mass Effect guy. Um, uh, I was in there with Casey and we were talking about where that would go uh, along with Mike. And then once uh, Legendary sort of kicked off and we got that greenlit because we've been trying to get that greenlit I don't know how long we've been trying to get that greenlit, but once it finally, once it finally got greenlit, it was like, all right, everyone, I'm going to go do this. Good luck. I'm here if you need me, but I'm going to focus on this. Yeah. So people would occasionally come to you and say, Hey, you know, Mac, what do you think about this? And you'd say, yeah, well, we'd set up like, there was actually like formal meetings where I'd get involved to them, like, especially if they were going to go into like a, a pitch or something like that, you know, just get another set of eyes on it and, and feedback on it. But I'll be honest, the more, the deeper we got into the legendary um, sort of production cycle, especially again, you know, having to deal with the pandemic and things like that, the more I was just like, y'all have got it, you know, you don't really need me for this. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I just, I, it's not that I stopped going. I just said, only call me if it's an emergency <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine it being a nice way to kind of your last sort of significant project being legendary to sort of, you know, almost tie a bow yeah um but it was kind of odd that i suppose because you were just working on dragon age i think uh, in the time before you left um yep. i had uh david gator on um this podcast last year and he was talking about that there was kind of an internal friendly rivalry between you know the mass effect teams and yep. dragon probably because the dragon age team was like we want some of that like star star yep. stuff that you've got there um it must have been odd finishing kind of on Dragon Age or, or was it not strange at all? No, no, it, it definitely was strange because it was, it was weird being on this IP. Like, so here's, here's an interesting story. So when I first started, um, uh, I was actually on helping out the KOTOR team, but I was actually just doing like, learn how to be a game developer stuff. <laughs> like, so it was like kind of QA kind of, um, uh, play the game, give us your feedback. It was like kind of that stuff. Right. And I remember one of the first things I saw, even before I saw anything on Jade, was uh, one of the 
programmers, I believe, showed me this really cool sequence from the earliest days of Dragon Age, right? And it was this sequence where they showed a bridge and there were all these people warring down below and stuff like that. And he was telling me how they'd done it through cards and how it looked like there's thousands of people on screen, but there isn't. And I was like, wow, that looks really cool. I'd love to work on that, right? So here's something that has, and that was almost, if it wasn't day one, it was week one, I'm sure of it, right? Of my time at Bioware. So here's something that's been a part of my zeitgeist, my, part of my world, my, and certainly my professional world, if nothing else, for almost 19 years, and I've never worked on it, right? And, and you know, the closest is, uh, I've come is like, you know, again, sometimes we would do, um, you know, internal reviews or something like that. Plus, you have your sort of quarterly internal milestones where, you know, everyone gets up and talks about the project, so you learn about the project that way. But it's always kind of just over there. So then suddenly being in it and realizing it's like... Um, how little you know it's it's what i was talking about before with you know i can't imagine someone who's new to mass effect 3 trying to try you know drink from that fire hose of all the <laughs> all the different things and that's kind of where i found myself I was like i i don't i don't know half of the stuff as instinctually as the people who are on this team now i was also in a very production centric role on that i sort of came in to sort of fill a very specific need um and um so, you know, I didn't have to be, you know, on top of it from a, from a creative perspective, but it was kind of like a really kind of surreal, almost experience to finally be working in that space that had been so sort of, you know, just in parallel in my universe for so long. And now I was in that, in that lane. Yeah. I can't wait to see what's, what's next for both of the, uh, both of the series. So, um, Thank you very much for kind of coming to the end of our, our time here. And um, and I really do appreciate um, you coming on. Um, but before we go, I have a few quick questions that I'd like to ask everybody. Sure. Um, so the first of these is first game. What was the first game you played? And this can be your literal first game or it can be the first significant game. So the first game that still sticks with me was a... I think it was an evil Knievel game on the <laughs> pet. If you remember the pet computer back in the day, um, my uncle was a math teacher and he had access to these computers and he would bring them home every once in a while and we were staying with them. It was just one of these things where it's like you had to calculate, you know, the jump, right? And the jump would always change. And, and if you didn't calculate it right, well, um, you know, evil Knievel would die. I still remember that. Again, just like being enthralled with that. Um, and then I would say... Obviously, I think Bard's Tale had a big impact, as I mentioned. I think that was one of the first sort of meaningful ones. And then the next one, I do have these stages in, you know, in, in, of evolution. I'd say Half-Life was one that stuck with me a long time because of the way that they did the story, like the, the visual storytelling. You know, it wasn't necessarily a narrative game, but they hooked me with so much of the environmental storytelling, the men in black, all the stuff that was going on. Like they, what they did... Uh, also through audio, I thought they had some of the best audio cues that I'd ever experienced in a game up until that point. Like I was fully immersed in that first um, Half-Life experience. So that that one was huge for me. And of course, um, I have, I'll, I'll call it out again, which was, um, you know, the Neverwinter Nights tool set itself, not the game, but the tool set. Again, I, I, I don't think people realize how much of a, of a crazy innovation that was and that it was available for so long um for you to just make your own game like at that at a time where i was like that like it was the original incredible ugc right yeah it's interesting that no one has really taken that on since because i remember uh, i I've, 
I've seen you know other people have mod tools and things yep. like that, but it's not quite the same because there was this yep. whole dungeon master thing as well. And yep. I remember playing on servers online that people have made their own MMOs effectively. Yeah. Uh, with the tool set and, and people were sort of living there effectively. Yeah. Um, it was it was kind of wild, and I think it's telling that no one else has done that again because obviously it was yeah. quite quite difficult. Yeah. Um, so the second of these questions is last game. What was the last game you've played? And I imagine you've got loads of time on your hands at the moment, so you've probably been playing everything. Does it does it count if it's a replay? Yeah, yeah. So I've been I've been replaying um, Inside, um, ah. which I played. You know, when it came out, I played Limbo as well. Um, and I don't know. There's something about the way that game so effortlessly again tells a story without being in your face. I guess it comes back to sort of my desire to really figure out what's the evolution of, you know, interactive storytelling. And I just think they do such an amazing job without ever saying a word, right, um, in that game. And the the representation of the world, even though there's no lore per se, you could imagine writing an entire lore around it and the mystery that they create around it. Just phenomenal. Um, another game uh, that I... Uh, spending a little bit of time i guess this is a new game which is just uh, the harry potter game i've been playing a little bit okay. just to see it's, it's funny a lot of hallmarks i would say from bioware i see a lot of things that um you know when we talk about what things that we've done like just the way they set up their quests and their dialogues and things like that it's hard playing games like that because i see behind the the curtain as it were i see how they're doing it. but it is interesting to see how many of those things that you know we did push and innovate on are just you know Everyone does it now, right? And it's, they do it to good effect. It's to think that there's a, a Bioware template right um, now because right. I, I was writing something about this earlier, actually. Um, I remember I was thinking about that kiss you have with Bastila at the end of Knights of the Old Republic. Yeah. Uh, right. Where she sort of takes you into that side room. And it's the first kiss that I can remember in a Bioware game. Like, they're actually being like a kiss moment. Yeah. Um, and, if, and, and also, there's other things in that game about how you assemble your crew. Um, you get a, a boat or a ship um and they sort of are there then you can go around and explore and there was so much about that game which seemed to be the start of a template which the studio would kind of use again and again going forwards and and obviously it's you know it's gotten grander and more complex and nuanced but in my head it seems to be like this bioware template which of course you know people who are growing up and playing games and then getting jobs in the games industry or are going on and taking these ideas elsewhere and they're flowering everywhere else, which is... Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think smart game development is, um, you know, evolving instead of trying to revolutionize at every at every step because if you look at some of the most successful franchises, they've just kind of grown on each other, you know, and, and often they can point back to something that wasn't even in the franchise, but you can see where the, the DNA is, right, and how they've grown into it, right? Like even... How far back can you trace back the roots of Elden Ring and things like that, right? Yeah. Um, going back a long way. And it, I guess there's a template to it, but I think what's what's important is that you're always looking to not just improve the template, but what are you going to add on to it? What are you going to, how are you going to evolve it and bring it into something new that matches where, you know, players are interested in being at a certain point in time, right? Um, and again, that's where, you know, clearly we've tried a bunch of things at uh, a at Bioware over the years and some of them have been very successful and others, you know, not so much. Yeah. So the last of these questions. Yes. 
best game? And this is an impossible question. I know this, but what was your favorite game? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll say no more. I think probably by the way I was just talking about it, I, I, I still think Half Life, even though it's it's not necessarily my i i wouldn't say it's my ideal game but it's the most memorable game like there i I can still picture so many elements of it when i so it clearly left a mark right yeah um and you have to just sort of say that for what it is right um um i i would also say the original bard still but you know and i've gone back and played it and i think some but to me a lot of that's nostalgia right when i actually think of something that even holds up today and you know i'm still taking lessons from today I'd say it's probably the original Half-Life. Good answer. I played the um, the Black Mesa, uh, mm. the sort of remake version, um, more recently. And that train ride, yeah. or tram ride, or into the facility, it still feels so audacious that you just yes. are just on that for minutes. I don't know how long you're on that for, but it feels like ages. Yeah. And you're just looking and watching. Exactly. And this is a, this is a first-person shooter, effectively. Yeah. I remember. Exactly. That. It's very yeah. bold. Um, Mac, thank you so much uh, for time thank you. Me and, and talking to me and being on this podcast. Um, to everyone listening, um, I'm Bertie. That was one to one, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.